Hi, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. While climate catastrophe escalates globally, mutual aid movements are interconnecting and building their power from below, engaged in decentralised disaster relief, rooted in solidarity and offering real-world systemic alternatives while meeting the survival needs of their communities. Today on Earth Matters, we bring you part one of a panel discussion to celebrate the book release of a new anthology called Building Power While the Lights Are Out, Disasters, Mutual Aid and Dual Power. And that's from Rebel Hearts Publishing. And this anthology contains a collection of essays on mutual aid movements, disaster relief and creating bottom-up social transformation by organising and building counter-institutions. And speaking on the panel today are editor Jimmy Dunson from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and contributors Sincia Ali Shakur, also formerly from Common Ground Relief, which is now known as Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, and Janet Kent from Rural Organising and Resistance. This audio was sourced with thanks from a webinar hosted by Firestorm Collective, a radical bookstore and community space in Asheville, North Carolina. My name is Jimmy Dunson. Any pronouns are fine. Just to get started, dual power for people not familiar with that term. Dual power is a strategy for the bottom-up transformation of society by building up counter institutions that can meet the needs of the people while simultaneously being a counterweight to oppressive institutions in society. And in my introductory piece to building power while the lights are out, I draw on a couple metaphors uh, that recur in a lot of different pieces uh, throughout the anthology. And this is cracks and seeds. The Zapatistas talk about a crack in the wall. And similarly, um, you know, other contributors or authors talk about a crack in time, a crack in history, a crack where more is possible, a crack in the imperialist white supremacist disaster capitalist patriarchy. And what nature teaches us is that to counter that, to widen those cracks, the most powerful way to do that is not meeting power on its terms, but staying grounded on, on our own terms and actually growing and blossoming and blooming in the thousands upon thousands of ways that individually and collectively our movements take. And it's actually, you know, if, if you look at nature, how it overcomes concrete, it's a seed. You know, a, a concrete is no match for a seed. Coming from below is actually the most powerful way to undermine these oppressive institutions. We need to find our way deep into the soil and the cracks of empire and then grow and bloom and blossom. And that's actually the most powerful way to counteract the destructive forces of empire. Capital and the state seem oftentimes invincible, but so did the divine right of kings, so did slavery, so did the Third Reich. There are many impossible things that we made possible, that our ancestors made possible, you know, made a way where there was no way. And we can again. How do we take on the white supremacist, disaster capitalist, imperialist, patriarchy fortress? It's actually through creation, through building from below. And it can start with the tiniest bit of liberated space. There's a story 
that Rebecca Solnit tells in A Paradise Built in Hell, how people after the San Francisco earthquake over a century ago started a community kitchen with one spoon and one tin can. With mutual aid disaster relief, we have a beautiful solar trailer and on it is a Arundhati Roy quote, another world is not only possible, she is on her way on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And there are many, many quiet days after hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and floods and pandemics. And we might you know, not have the grid, we might not have electricity, but we find untapped power within ourselves and our ability to, to make something happen out of nothing and build something together. No matter how small it starts, it doesn't matter. Today, we may be sharing meals with people who are experiencing homelessness or cleaning up a elder's flooded home after a hurricane. In the future, you might be creating infrastructure, water infrastructure for whole communities, you know, or decommissioning nuclear power plants or replanting, you know, wetlands to create a barrier for the superstorms that are coming. Across the board, everything we do now is setting the stage for what comes next. And whatever we see that needs to be done, you know, whether it's giving Pedialyte to a child after this extreme heat wave or, you know, cleaning up the plastics in the ocean, we have to do. The market's not going to save us. The nonprofit industrial complex, the state, they've always abandoned the people to disaster and ruin. And we do have a hope for survival and it comes from each other and building these relationships and bonds with each other to meet the crisis. We live in an age of crisis. And from my own personal psychological crises, I know that a return to pre-crisis is not possible. There is no return to normal. The only way out is through. And that's where we're at collectively. And there's a number of con amazing contributors to building power while the lights are out. And they all offer really beautiful and complementary perspectives and visions uh, and really showcase how that's a really diverse movement of movements and ecosystem organizing at this intersection of disasters and mutual aid and dual power. And so I'm really excited that Janet Kent from Rural Organizing and Resilience and Sincerely Shakur are here with us. Janet Kent wrote the piece called Mutual Aid and Anti-Racist Organizing in Rural Appalachia. And Sincere wrote the essay, Love My People Following in the Footprints of the Panthers. Yeah, so I wanted to just say from the outset here that I didn't actually write bottom line writing the piece, but I am here today. Uh, one of our other members did, but we all looked over it and gave advice. And it was kind of a heavy lift to summarize what we've done. So I just don't want to take sole credit for that. Spring of 2017, a group of us who were living here rurally in Southern Appalachia were kind of overwhelmed with what seemed to be an increasingly polarized field of um, the way things were being portrayed in the media and the fallout from that 2016 election and even just the climate leading up to it. That election cycle gave a boost to a lot of white supremacist groups and people, militia type groups who were wanting to organize in rural communities that were already predominantly white. And so we wanted to make sure that those kinds of groups couldn't get a foothold right away in our communities. A network of different organizers all through Southern Appalachia began to talk about ways we could support our communities. And 
begin to counter that narrative that this is a white space, which it's not, but also that it is entirely people who are supportive of white supremacist values, basically. And also a lot of the stuff that was going along with that, a lot of the divisive rhetoric, splitting people into groups um, and using division to gain power while actual life conditions for most people are crumbling and becoming worse and worse. And so over time, we realized that though we do want to educate and be a voice for creating spaces that are safer for everyone, um, we realized also that there was just a huge need for mutual aid here and for support, especially once the pandemic got going. And so we had to sort of shift values and we found that we were able to connect with more kinds of people and have the kind of conversations we wanted to have by basing ourselves more around resource sharing than we were when we were just coming at it from an anti-racist organizing angle, although that's still part of what we're doing. And so we do a lot of different sharing of resources. We give firewood to folks who don't have it. So we have like firewood production days during the pandemic. We had a weekly food and supply distro that was pretty important for a lot of folks because a lot of rural people don't have regular jobs that can get you unemployment. And so we saw a lot of folks like falling through the cracks in that way where there was less um, capacity to access that resource as there were some places. So that's a, basically a summary and I'll wait for you to ask some more questions after that. Sincere, did you want to intro Love My People Following the Footprints of the Panthers? Do you want me, me to go straight to the questions? When I was a kid, we ate rice and eggs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was a real struggle for my father and I to make it. I had seen a PBS documentary on this brother called Fred Hampton. And I think he was like 20 or something like that at the time. And I was just so impressed that this young man had started children's free breakfast programs. And here I am, this kid in the third grade, not really eating well. And uh, I seen the breakfast and the cereal and all this type of thing that people that look just like me was doing for children who look just like me. Because oftentimes in the black community, we hard on each other. We tell each other that certain hopes aren't possible. And when I saw the Black Panther Party, you know, Fred Hampton, put it into action, put things into action, to go into the community to change things for the positive, to feed children, to set up um, survival programs like clinics, free grocery programs, shoes, vaccinations, rise to the penitentiary. And I told myself, you know, when I get older, I want to be just like this guy, Fred Hampton. And that began my love affair with the Panther Party. Before I uh, came to Asheville, North Carolina, I was severely educated by some really cool former members of the Black Riddle family and members of the Black Panther Party as well. And uh, the elders would come to my home, uh, namely Shuja Graham, who at, at some point he was the Supreme Commander under George Jackson in the 70s, a Soledad brother. And also the, the person that accompanied him, his name was Elder Freeman. And this elder, he's passed on now, this elder was the, uh, the bodyguard for Bunchy Carter. And, you know, that was his, uh, his claim for the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party. I mean, I know that that education that I received from those guys, their experiences and everything that they had uh, talked about 
Wood that shared with me helped me when I entered New Orleans. I was ready. And I had to act. So when Katrina happened, it was like any other, any uh, everybody else. I was like, oh, well, you know, the government's going to go down there with boats and food and water and everything's going to be just fine, you know. And I was really, I turned a blind eye to it at first because I thought it was a problem that would take care of itself. Next morning, a friend of mine that gets up really late, he calls me 7.30 in the morning and said, man, you got to watch CNN. You got to see what they're doing to our people. So the young kids next door had, uh, had cable and I went over there. And, um, and I caught George Bush um, in his, in his uh, interview. And he said that he was gonna send troops from Iraq to New Orleans to talk to those people in the only language they seem, those people seem to understand. And that's the language of violence. And uh, I felt compelled to protect my people. If I didn't do it then, then I didn't deserve to be black. I didn't deserve the education that I got. So, you know, um, like many other common grounders and other people who went down to serve uh, New Orleans, it was just something in, in our soul and our spirit burning. We had to get there. And I had to go see about my people because basically United, uh, uh, the, the president of the United States declared open war on them like there was nothing. And uh, that's what propelled me to go down to New Orleans. I got down... First night we was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, it was a trip because the Klan down in Hattiesburg was sniping black people from the highway. And they was cutting up pretty bad down there. And uh, the next morning we, we went into Algiers and I found out from one of the veterans for peace that I, you know, the convoy that I came to New Orleans with, that uh, the Klan that, uh, that night and Hattiesburg had shot up the camp looking for me. So, you know, I mean, I knew it was real before I got down there. I mean, it, we, we used to always say we can bottle up the atmosphere so people can smell what, what this feels like. You know, it's hard to describe if, if you wasn't there, but I knew that it was, it was, gonna, it was something real. Um, I knew that I was going to have to take certain measures, you know, from uh, the atrocities and everything that was happening to them. When I got there, I met Malik Rahim. He told me how dangerous it was for dangerous it was for a black male to be there. There was only something like 40 something uh, well-armed white vigilantes that at the point that I got there had murdered uh, 19 young black people. And they basically got away with it. And, um, you know, um, I joined up with, with, with Malik and, um, and that's how I met uh, Jimmy. One thing about, you know, being there in New Orleans, we were around a bunch of, a whole lot of amazing human beings. You wasn't by yourself. And it was so beautiful to look into white people's eyes and their spirit and see their spirit and see the fact that we, we come from different race, a different class, basically a different culture. But when push come to shove, we were all one. We were all the same spirit. We love, we fell in love with, well, it only took us 48 hours to fall in love with each other. You know, well-to-do white people block off every avenue for poor white people in the area that I was in, in St. Bernard Paris, to get any type of relief, any type of aid. And the reason why they were suffocating them like this is because they wanted these people to move so they can take over their land. 
And this was like, you know, the whole Katrina recovery thing was basically a land grab on steroids. You know, but it was, um, New Orleans was an incredible experience for me that will forever has changed my life. I am so proud to be a part of a very unique fraternity of men and women. They're very brave and very loving. And one of the most challenging times in New Orleans, I mean, at that time period in the beginning, where I had to carry a nine millimeter rifle, you know? I mean, we talk about this macho, mucho uh, bullshit, about how you want to like be all militant, carry guns and all this type of craziness. You know, um, when I got there, it was, it was, it was real. It wasn't about being mucho macho, it was about saving lives and sacrificing your life for others so they could live to keep serving. You know, and, that, and my little buddy right there, Jimmy, he was asleep by the front door. He didn't believe in dealing with guns or anything like that, but he would use his body as a shield if, you know, the house was uh, uh, fired upon by either vigilante or police department because they had made threats to wipe us all out. And they also made a move to wipe us out, but everybody that they wanted to wipe out wasn't there at the time. You know, so they just held shotguns, everybody's stomachs, you know, and abused certain people in front of people, you know, one night. But, you know, how I see the future, I am going through a lot of mental health issues and all this type of thing because of my experience down there. But the only thing that really kind of make it worth it is to see all these young people uh, and these mutual aid groups popping up all over the United States and popping up all over the world. So our sacrifice that we made, you know, was not in vain. The world heard us and they started organizing themselves, you know, using uh, parts of the model that we use for common ground. And um, mutual aid disaster relief uh, 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 and everything, mutual aid disaster relief, MADR took the best parts of Common Ground and reformed it into uh, MADR. And uh, hopefully this, this thing will live on. Mutual aid, I always said um, disaster relief is basically the, the new activism organizing around you know disasters. It's not gonna stop. I think uh, last year we had like what, something like 22 hurricanes or something like that you know, and floods and and, and, every, and earthquakes and all this type of thing. So it's a great opportunity. The Japanese say, have a saying that, you know, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but a great tragedy is great opportunity. You know, and, and when disaster comes, there's great opportunity to rebuild a community, a collective of people, like Jimmy was saying, to get, you know, to empower them from the bottom so they can rise to the top so we can all rise together. And I'm gonna wrap it up with that. <laughs> awesome. And, you know, since you're, in addition to being part of Common Ground, was also part of Occupy Sandy, uh, um, relief effort after the earthquake in Haiti, uh, and, you know, mutual aid disaster relief into the current day, doing programs, you know, in Wilson Towers that you see in the background. So can mutual aid organizing prevent or reverse far right or white supremacist organizing? And can you share an experience related to this? Janet, do you wanna go first? Sincere was saying like mutual aid is the new organizing. We're not the only people noticing this, you know? Um, I don't know if people have been seeing this, but like far right groups, um, some of which started in disaster relief are beginning to organize mutual aid hubs around the continent and um, 
I've definitely know some of that started in Louisiana with some of the folks who are organizing around Cajun Navy style boat rescue have formed other cells that are involved in um, other kinds of work. And so we're not the only folks who see the potential in this, the people who are doing the kind of work we're all doing. Um, and so I do think that just in the fact that the, the we are living under a failed state with an increasingly extractive and exploitative economy. And as those gaps become larger and there's less and less access to resources for folks, we're gonna continue to see more and more far right groups understand the potential for mutual aid support. Um, I definitely know there's quite a bit of that kind of work going on in Northern California right now. And so I do see setting up on the ground roots place-based support as um, for the ongoing disaster that we're all living through that can definitely mobilize when there is a more extreme kind of disaster within the ongoing disaster, I think is a way to offset the chances of that work being done by someone else. And so I do see potential with that. You know, we've just seen this community, community and just the culture in general be increasingly polarized, even compared to when we started in 2017. Like it's just so much more intense now. This like critical race theory thing has happened now where we see far-right politicians mobilizing around this created idea that teaching the actual history of this country is radical, <laughs> you know, to even acknowledge the history in, in the most basic way is seen as harmful now. So it's interesting how much the terrain has shifted over time. Part of what we can be doing, especially for people who are more like place-specific um, is seeing the groups who are being targeted like teachers. Teachers are under threat in so many ways right now, whether it's through acknowledging different kinds of sexual orientation or gender or by discussing the actual history of this state. So I think that establishing mutual aid hubs for the ongoing disaster is a way to prevent far-right organization and rising because I do think that's going to be more and more of a strategy because we're not the only people who see that. And on the other hand, as the targets of incendiary rhetoric are shifted for political gain, I think um, supporting those people, even if it's behind the scenes, like not always doing everything publicly is gonna be increasingly important. And as society continues to crumble, there are going to be more and more targets probably. So keeping an eye on that and supporting people um, I think it's pretty important work at this point. The way I think back on the work that we've done over the years, and it's actually so much more of a hostile climate now than it was politically, um, you know? So that's what I have to answer. I mean, I would like to say that I have better examples for supplanting white supremacist organizing, definitely different plans for white supremacist communities that and land grabs that were happening in Southern Appalachia were put off by publicizing around that. But I'm starting to wonder if even speaking publicly about that will continue to be as effective. That's what I have to say. I don't know what Sincere thinks. I had an experience um, when I was in New Orleans and uh, in uh, St. Bernard Parish. Me and uh, my partner, we rolled up on this house that had the biggest uh, rebel flag you ever want to see, you know, uh, flopping in the wind. Me and my partner, we looked at each other. We flipped a coin who's going to go knock on the door. <laughs> and of course, you know, with my luck, I lost the uh, I lost the draw. So, you know, she was kind of scared for me. She was like, you don't necessarily have to go. If you don't want to, I'll go. I was like, you know, 
all they can do is tell me, nigga, get off my porch. And I'm going to get off his porch. No problem, you know. But so I knock on the guy's door. And uh, he opens the door. His name is Mike. He, he's, he looks like um, an action figure. This little, he's like about maybe like four foot eight. Very stocky, well built. And he reaches out and he grabs me. And he locks his arms around me. And I'm like, oh shit. And he's crying. And he's cr crying uncontrollably. And then uh, he stops crying. And then he looks at me and says, you know what, brother? My brother's left me back here to die. You're the first one to come back here to see about me. And right then and there, he, rena he renounced uh, the, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, right then and there. And me and him became like really good friends to this day. And for him to make that type of transformation, it's because of mutual aid. Because somebody, not just a black person showed up, but a human being showed up with aid. A lot of times you got well-meaning white folks that like organize, you know, programs and everything for the black community. I'm not against that at all. But at the same time too, there are poor white communities that also could use that help. You know, a lot of Klansmen and neo-Nazis come from poor backgrounds. So if you could take some of that and go back to your own community where these people are at and build children's free breakfast programs for them, you know, and begin to educate, uh, re-educate them on who the real enemy is. But dealing with racism, you know, it's gonna be an uphill battle. So we gotta, you know, stick together. There's not a lot of us, but now there is though. There's a, there's a lot more of us than it, than it used to be. I used to get so sick and tired to see the same people I, I used to meet. It used to be a very small circle, but hopefully uh, after, you know, you know, about maybe about 10, 20 more years, we won't have that problem anymore. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, we've been listening to part one of a panel discussion to celebrate the book release of a new anthology called Building Power While the Lights Are Out, Disasters, Mutual Aid and Dual Power from Rebel Hearts Publishing. And the panel speakers were editor Jimmy Dunson from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and also Sunsia Ali Shakur from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and Janet King from Rural Organising and Resilience. This audio was sourced with thanks from a webinar hosted by Firestorm Collective, a radical bookstore and community space in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can find out more about Firestorm Collective at firestorm.coop. And you can find the anthology, Building Power While the Lights Are Out, at rebelheartspublishing.com. And you can find today's podcast and the links from today's show at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe and why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can find us on your socials. That's all for today, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental justice stories. Well, no, go stand on my friend, my
3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.